Thanks for listening to the Half Hour of Heterodoxy podcast. I'm Chris Martin. My guest today is Robert Wright. He's a former senior editor at The New Republic, and he currently hosts The Wright Show. He's also the author of several best-selling books on evolution and society. His latest book is Why Buddhism is True. Hi, Bob. Hi, Chris. Thanks for joining us on the show. One little bit of trivia is that Blogging Heads and uh, The Right Show, your show in particular, were partly the inspiration for Half Hour of Heterodoxy. Oh, really? Yeah, it started out as a video podcast with uh, Skype with two people talking, and then we decided after a few episodes to go to audio only. But uh, I'm indebted to you for that. And I get royalties too, right? Yep, yep. Royalties should be in the mail. Yeah, I'll check. Yeah. Um, maybe you could plug your book later and sort of get indirect royalties through that. Okay, we'll call it even. Okay. Anyway, I thought we'd start by talking about the Mindful Resistance newsletter, because that combines two of your interests, one of which is tribalism, and the other is mindfulness. So tell me a bit about this newsletter, what made you think of starting it, and how it's worked out so far. Yeah, so I guess, I mean, first of all, I had written this book. Might as well get the plug plug out of the way right away. I'd written this book called Why Buddhism is True, which uh, is about the kind of naturalistic part of Buddhism, sometimes called the secular part, with, with an emphasis on mindfulness meditation. So I was talking about mindfulness. Uh, this is as of like August uh, of last year, the book came out. And meanwhile, I was... Uh, reaching the opinion that what's called the resistance against Trump and Trumpism is uh, sometimes a little overwrought and a little too reactive and not reflective enough uh, and sometimes plays into Trump's hands. Uh, And it seemed to me that a more mindful approach uh, would be good. Uh, And by mindful, I, I, I mean both you know, mindfulness in the sense of mindfulness meditation. And we can talk about that later if you want, but also just in the plain English, you know, sense of the word mindful. In other words, proceeding attentively, you know, calmly with due consideration of all relevant factors and, and so on. I, I It just seemed to me that um, that wasn't really uh, happening with uh, the resistance to Trump. And so I wrote a piece for Vox. Uh, about, uh, you know, kind of unveiling the phrase mindful resistance and recommending as it as an approach. I'd actually, I guess, already started the newsletter at that point, but it didn't, didn't have that big a following at that point. And I've been talking about it since then. We've been coming up pretty much every week for nine months. We're, we're taking a little summer break now, but the subscription has grown. We have 8,500 uh, email subscribers now, and I continue to believe in the cause. Yeah, I started subscribing to it about a month and a half ago, so I didn't get the very early issues. But uh, from the issues I did get, it seems like it's a dispassionate look at primarily Trump-related scandals. (laughs) Is that a fair way to put it right now? I wouldn't say that. No, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I would say, well, there's a section at the beginning beginning called The Week in Trump, and we do feel compelled to at least touch on the most uh, important scandals, but, um, but that, even that section is much more than that. And we try to include things that are being kind of overlooked 
uh, that we think are important. I mean, for example, this last week we had an, uh, an item on the election in Italy uh, because that that brought to power or the, the, the forming of the coalition government in Italy that brought to power the most kind of Trumpist uh, coalition in Western Europe conceivable exception of Austria, but this is certainly more important uh, than that in any event. And, and that, you know, that got a little press, but, but most people in the so-called resistance were paying a lot more attention to other, you know, uh, things, including scandals, as you put it. So it's, it's an attempt, the newsletter, it, it is supposed to be fairly dispassionate to the extent that's possible. Um, and it's supposed to, uh, to get people to focus on things they may be overlooking. And then occasionally, I mean, periodically, and I haven't done enough of this, um, there's actual kind of commentary from the from a mindful point of view on events, how they're, uh, how they're being processed. Um, I think uh, we want to do more than that. And one reason we're taking some time off in the summer is to kind of recalibrate and figure out what things we can do better. And I definitely believe that that's one of them is to have uh, more, um, more, more kind of overt mindfulness in there. I agree with the issue of having some overt mindfulness in our politics. I've seen some research, I think it was by Zainab Tufetsky, mm-hmm. about how social movements nowadays may chase small issues and forget about them and chase another set of small issues based on what's hot in the news cycle. And uh, I was very appreciative of the Mindful Resistance newsletter because I think it at least deliberately moves us away from that. I know you've talked to some people lately about Twitter and how the way to get a lot of Twitter followers, uh, I believe it was an academic at Yale. Yeah. About how the way to get a lot of Twitter followers is to sort of jump on the hot topic of the day and just put a lot of emotion and anger into your into your tweets. Well, it's pretty clear. You don't have to be an academic to 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 see that it's a lot easier to develop a big Twitter problem uh, following by being part of the problem than being part of the solution. I mean, if the problem is tribalism, right? Right. And uh, it's a very hard temptation to avoid. For one thing, you have to settle for not building up a following very fast if you're going to really systematically avoid the the temptation to cater to the tribalism. And I don't always succeed. I mean, my, my impulse is always, I have very tribal impulses and, and, uh, I don't always succeed in transcending them. Um, but it, it is, it is a real problem in America that for, you know, for both of the main tribes, if you want to see it as kind of binary pro Trump and anti Trump, um, the way to attain status within your group is to deepen antagonisms with the other group, by and large, and that's a pretty that's a pretty unfortunate incentive structure. Yeah, I think maybe the Never Trump movement has eroded that to some degree. I mean, I do have a lot of admiration for people in the Never Trump movement. I mean, have they really? Um, I feel like maybe they have. I mean, they've taken a risk. Would you say that? But would you say that Bill Crystal and David Frum are not tweeting tribally? That's a good question. I mean, they are tweeting tribally. I guess you're yeah, right. Very, very much. Very expertly. And they're building up huge followings. That is true. So on your show, on The Right Show, you interview people who are pretty far left and pretty far right. Um, how do you engage with people all across the political spectrum? 
Well, for one thing, I should avoid ta talking about them the way I just talked about David Frum and Bill Crystal. And maybe David won't come on my show anymore. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't mean to be that critical. He's not. He's no different than anyone else on Twitter. I'm. I'm just saying. I don't. I. I, I don't. I don't see him as as a kind of exception. But anyway, uh, you know, the answer is. I mean, first of all, Blogging Heads TV began uh, in a context of uh, of of debate. I mean, our first, uh, from the beginning, and we've been around since 2005, you know, we would arrange conversations between, uh, bloggers often, but journalists usually in any event, um, often who would criticize one another pretty intensely in print and sometimes had never spoken to each other. Um, and, one thing we found is that when they had a face-to-face -face conversation, I mean, actually with the technology we were using then, they couldn't actually see each other, but they were having a real-time kind of phone conversation, more or less. Um, and we found that that had a civilizing influence, that it's a lot easier to write nasty things about other people than to say nasty things to their face. And so that has been kind of in our DNA from the beginning. We have uh, we haven't consistently done a very robust job of arranging these uh, these kinds of out and out debates, but we've we've tried to do it intermittently. And I myself, on my show, the Right Show, um, I certainly have tried to stay in touch with uh, people from diverse viewpoints, and I plan to start trying harder now that. Uh, you know, tribalism is such a a clear problem and such a well known problem. Uh, I want to, um, uh, I, I want to, you know, I, I have tried to have a number of Trump supporters on, but I haven't had enough. Um, and I, I, I want to have more and more people from more and more perspectives. Uh, as for how you do, did you was that part of your question? Like. Um, yeah, just how do you maintain uh, connections with with people across the spectrum? And well, I mean, if you treat them respectfully, uh, you know, and sometimes if you uh, help them promote their books, that helps. I mean, I, if you have them on when they've got books that come out, they they appreciate that. Um, but uh, you know, I find if you treat them honestly and respectfully, and, and don't obscure your disagreements with them. But don't you know engage them at at, at an at an honest and intellectual level. You know, don't don't if you don't spend the, the conversation, you know, trying trying to arrange gotcha moments and 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 do effective talking points, but actually engage with the core of their arguments. I find that people are usually appreciative of that. Not that I always succeed at that. I, I, yeah, I have the, you know, the same temptation to prevail in debate as anyone else. And often the way you, you prevail in debate is, is cheaply, right? I mean, you know, you, in terms of just carrying the audience, a lot of times the way to do that is to not engage at the, at the deepest intellectual level. Well, you can definitely see that on television. Oh, totally. Uh, and, and, and you see it when you're, uh, when you're in front of a live audience uh, where uh, there are partisans in the audience on one or both sides, you, it, it can be very frustrating. I mean, I had, I mean, I'm, I'm, why not name names? I had, I did a live event with Lawrence Krauss. You know, I have a history of 
disagreements with the new atheists, um, not, not over the theism question, but over other questions. Um, and uh, it was in New York and it was, you know, he had a lot of fans in the crowd and it was very frustrating because, and I kind of lost my cool. If anybody wants to go, it's at, it's there on meaningoflife.tv, which is the sister site of Blogging Heads TV. And there's also a YouTube channel. So if you, if you Google our names, you'll find it. I kind of, I kind of, probably didn't handle myself that well because it was so frustrating because I was really trying to have a serious argument with him about this argument of his. But having that argument was not the way for him to maximize the amount of positive reinforcement he got from the crowd, you know? So what sort of things was he saying? Oh, j- just his standard. I-, I don't remember that clearly. People can go watch it, but certainly it included the standard dismissals of, uh, Oh, I, I, I don't want to characterize it. It, it, it's just, for one thing. I mean, it seemed to me he was kind of filibustering a little, uh, because it was going well for him because he was, you know, in front of a home crowd. Um, but anyway, people want to see me, arguably, uh, lose my cool in a regrettable way. It's out there, and um, but you know, I, I, I'm sure if I had been in front of a bunch of people who were just really ardently on my side in an emotional way, I might have succumbed to the temptation too to just, you know, to just do talking points. Um, but, but, but that's the environment we're all in now. Talking points work on Twitter, you know? Right. Well, if you're, if you're trying to monetize your Twitter feed or monetize. Or just maximize your following, which we all would like to do, right? We, we'd all like to build a big following. And all the incentives are just to do uh, cheap talking points. I, I mean, I don't want to overgeneralize, there, uh, but uh, make it sound any worse than it is. But certainly uh, a tried and true formula is to do cheap talking points. Yeah. Maybe more people should take up stand-up comedy as a hobby so they can get that out of their system on a stage. <laughs> and be more serious when they do shows and interviews. But the reason I bring this up is that I struggle with the issue of both siderism. I also struggle with the peop- with the issue of lies and how to deal with the fact that people are telling lies. Now, my podcast has only been running for a short amount of time, so this has nothing to do with the podcast and, and the guests I have. But when it comes to political debate, I feel like there's propaganda out there, and sometimes you directly need to say that's propaganda, or those are falsehoods, and they were constructed by someone but it's very hard to respectfully say to someone look i know you're lying well you know what i i almost always avoid the word lie because for one thing it's almost impossible to confirm that someone's lying i mean to lie means to knowingly and intentionally deceive and like even with donald trump i mean i honestly don't know what's going on in his head I, I don't know how often he is consciously aware at the moment he's saying something untrue that it's untrue. It's a mystery to me. And in any event, it's hard to confirm with certainty. So I avoid that term. And in fact, one of my critiques of the resistance is how loosely it is used the term lie, because I, I think that just, you know, galvanizes his base, you know, becomes a grievance of his. And so anyway, I, I know that's kind of a digression, but um, uh, I think you should certainly call out things that are demonstrably untrue and say they're demonstrably untrue. Um, but I try to avoid the word lie. And that partly reflects just kind of a cynical view of the human mind. I think we, we very often do 
mislead ourselves in order to mislead others better. I think often often we deceive people tactically and yet not consciously. I think that's true. I think some of Jonathan Haidt's research really shows that. Anyway, I also wanted to talk about, speaking of John Haidt, I wanted to talk about Heterodox Academy. I don't know how much you know about Heterodox Academy. You've, uh, I know you work with Glenn Lowry, who's a member and he's been on the show and you recently interviewed Musa Al-Garbi, who is Mm -hmm. one of the researchers who works for us uh, as well. So there's some connections there, but based on what you've heard, what's your opinion of the work we're doing? I don't know that much and I need to get a better sense of it because when I first heard about it, it seemed like pretty much a right-wing endeavor. I mean, you know, at least in the sense that uh, its declared enemy seemed to be social justice warriors, and they're on the left. Um, I, I think both Glenn and Musa, I, I don't have an exhaustive understanding of their ideologies, but both of them probably complicate that picture in, in one sense or another. But uh, so I'm still trying to get a fix on it. I, I mean, I'm sure it's declared ideology. I know it's declared ideology is not conservatism, it is. Uh, you know, I, I gather, you tell me, but, you know, free unbridled speech without uh, fear of censorship or physical assault, all of, all of which I'm in favor of. Um, the way I would put it is that we're trying to introduce, well, we're trying to increase the degree to which people respectfully engage with people across the political spectrum and the religious and cultural spectrum. And... I think we definitely gave people the impression that we were right-leaning when we started out because we were, especially our first year, quite critical of social justice warrior types. I don't really like that term, but people who are engaging in protests. And lately we've been more, um, well, we've been spending more time working on resources, so just promoting schools that are doing a good job of promoting viewpoint diversity and promoting healthy dialogue and that sort of thing. I mean, I'll tell you one one thing early on that uh, gave me the impression it was right wing, and I do, I wish I could remember exactly what this was. It was a semi official blog post. Okay, it was definitely by someone associated with Heterodox Academy, and it listed specific issues that should the discussion of which should not be constrained. And one of them was. Uh, IQ and race or the genetics of IQ and race. And there was no mention of gender differences, which struck me as odd because from a Darwinian point of view, there's much more clear-cut reason to expect specific um, gender differences, especially in the realm of sexual psychology, than there is to expect any any particular specific uh, racial differences that would have a genetic difference. So I thought that was odd uh, and 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 reinforced my initial into it, my initial impression that it was right that it was right wing. Yeah, I don't recall the specific blog post in question. Um, I know we did have a page called the Problem, I and mean, we still have it, but we've we have new information there now where we talked about some orthodoxies that. Uh, that are difficult to question. So in one version of that page, we may have mentioned that. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think if there's a reason we didn't talk about sex and IQ or gender and IQ is that 
most of the recent research suggests that the averages are, are pretty much the same. It's the variances that defer. So I don't really know of anyone right now. Oh, no, but, but, but no, in certain realms, that's not, that's, I think any evolutionary psychology, I mean, I think you're talking about things like, um, you know, aptitude scores in math or English. I'm, I'm talking about um, sexual psychology, nature of jealousy, mate choice. Um, there, the, the, the differences you, you would predict, um, by mate choice, I don't, I don't mean the, the gender of the mate. I, I mean, more subtle things, but, um, there, there are very clear cut predictions from Darwinian theory that seem to be, uh, borne out by the evidence. Right. Well, after the James Damore debacle, we did publish a couple of posts reviewing the research on, um, a few cognitive differences. Um, or lack thereof. Uh, we've never yeah. really published anything about mate choice. I mean, that's a really interesting field. And I think we certainly have quite a few members who do evolutionary psychology because they've had to deal with the issue of uh, being criticized for, you know, they, they get criticized for being not sufficiently feminist or reifying gender differences that are socially, mm -hmm. allegedly socially constructed. So I think we've We've continuously attracted people who do evolutionary psychology. Maybe I should interview someone on the show in the near future, talk about what we currently know about differences and similarities. Well, you probably have some members who are, uh, I mean, are, are, uh, are Lita Cosmetas and John Tooby in the Heterodox Academy? Maybe not. Maybe not. I think Lita is a member. I'm not sure about John Tooby. David Buss is a member. I think some of the people who've worked in his labs are, uh, or his lab rather our members mm -hmm. yeah the uh the, the 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 google memo thing was an interesting when you call it a debacle do you you mean in what sense from uh well i think in the sense that i mean from a pr perspective i think what google did made sense but i think it was a debacle because google repeated the falsehood that the latest science shows there are no meaningful sex differences. I feel like that was implied in Sundar Pichal's response, and maybe from a PR perspective, he had to do that. Uh, but I feel like they didn't necessarily have to fire James Damore. Uh, I mean, I don't think Damore was, you know, put things in the most polite way, should have expressed what he was trying to express differently. Um, but at the same time, I think it could have been a quote-unquote teachable moment for Google, and they could have had some evolutionary psychologists come and talk about what we know about gender differences and gender similarities. Yeah, but see, what, one thing that bothered me about the way the whole thing played out is the way evolutionary psychology was associated with it. When in fact, the, the kinds of gender differences he was talking about in the memo, at least many of them, they may have an empirical grounding. I don't know. I mean, I haven't looked up the data, but they are not particularly predicted by Darwinian theory. So when, when he said things like, you know, I mean, you tell me, did he, I think he said things like, uh, you know, women are more about people and men are more about things. And, and th there was, a, there were a number of things he said that, that may be true, but they're not like clear cut predictions from evolutionary theory. And yet, he can't, you know, like I know David Brooks wrote about him and mentioned how evolutionary psychology confirms, you know, and the reason this bothers me is because evolutionary psychology is always getting accused of telling just so stories, right? They see any kind of data and they come up with a story that would explain it uh, in Darwinian terms. And 
that that's the stereotype of evolutionary psychology. And it seemed to me that, and, you know, I, I've even seen uh, some evolutionary psychologists kind of uh, embrace his memo in a way that I think leads to some of the confusion I'm talking about, because as I understand the things he said in the memo, these again are not, but partly because they're not primarily in the realm of uh, sexual psychology, um, a lot of them are not particularly predicted by Darwinian theory. So uh, I was, uh, that was my own personal um, uh, reaction to some of that, is that I, I just want people to not, th- I mean, although I've just said that there are some gender differences that evolution, evolutionary psychology predicts, I want to be clear that it doesn't clearly predict all the ones that, you know, survey data may may seem to indicate. That's true. I don't think he was approaching it necessarily from an evolutionary point of view. I don't know if there was anything in the memo, in the memo about evolution per se. I think he meant, I believe he mentioned the term or, or maybe if not in the memo subsequently, but in any event, it definitely came to be kind of associated with the memo. Um, and he was embraced, uh, I think, by some evolutionary psychologists, in, in part, I think, because they had taken flack when talking about certain gender differences that are more central to evolutionary psychology, um, which is an interesting dynamic, the whole like the enemy of the of my enemy is my friend thing. You're seeing that play out in a lot of ways now. Definitely. Um, in, in the in the you know the the intellectual dark web thing is a fascinating thing to observe. What's your theory about the inter- intellectual dark web? Do you think that's even an appropriate term? Um. Well, there are two words you could ask about, intellectual and dark. <laughs> dark is inappropriate because I don't think many of them were having trouble getting a lot of attention. Um, you know, when you're going on Joe Rogan's podcast, you're not, you're not exactly being marginalized. Yeah, that was, that was my quibble with the term, too, is that it's not really dark in any way. They are to varying degrees intellectuals, I guess, the people, the people who were listed in that uh, piece. Um, you know, the... I actually had a couple of uh, I've had a couple of conversations on blogging heads with Brett Weinstein, um, who is of course listed in that group, and he's an interesting case because he comes from the left. He's a Bernie Sanders supporter, but he had a run-in with you know the 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 group sometimes known as the Social Justice Warriors at his college, and and so he has. Um, you know, he has come to be allied in a certain sense with a number of people who aren't in the left. I mean, most of the people listed as being in the intellectual dark web, I would say, are on the right. They they make the case, and Brett makes the case, that they there actually is no ideology characterizing the intellectual dark web. Um, but I, I, I think there are reasons, it's understandable that people on the left see it as basically a right-wing thing. I... I, I I mean, I can elaborate if you want, but um, that's not a surprising reaction, uh, especially in light of who it was who brought them the publicity. Someone who clearly is on the right, Barry Weiss of the New York Times, um, and who seemed to want to, uh, you know, highlight and, and mobilize this group. Right. I actually just interviewed Heather Hying for this show. In fact, the next episode that we release is going to be her episode. She'll be coming mm. in a couple of weeks. She's Brett Weinstein's wife. and. Right. I I would definitely say, given her concern with economic inequality, which is one of the things we talk about on the show, I would place her pretty squarely on the left as well. So 
I feel like sometimes it's just hard to classify people because you can you you're, you can be tempted to use yourself as a referent mm-hmm. and say, well, I define the center. So if someone appears to be to the right of me, or again, there's the enemy of the enemy is my friend issue, where if you hear someone criticizing someone on the left, it just almost seems like there's a system one processing process or, or a really intuitive process in your head below the level of consciousness where you almost immediately want to classify any critic of the left as being on the right and vice versa. But also there is the dynamic where they can actually move to the right as a result of the conflict they're having with the left, you know, because they are drawn in to uh, a, an alliance that is largely on the right. I mean, that can actually happen and it can happen in reverse too. And and it's just an interesting, you know, it's just an interesting dynamic of polarization. That is. So, Jumping back to evolutionary psychology, when you were writing extensively about evolutionary psychology, did you ever get into trouble for saying anything about gender differences and or anything related to that? Yeah, I did. Uh, I mean, this was my book, The Moral Animal, came out in the 1990s, in 1994. And uh, yeah, I got into trouble. Um, the it, But, you know, oddly... I think if I said exactly the same things now, I would get into even more trouble. Why do you think that's odd? Because because I think in some of these cases, uh, you know, again, basic things about uh, sexual psychology, mate choice, um, you know, male heterosexuals being, in a certain sense, more indiscriminate about sex partners, more indiscriminately attracted, and more aroused by sheerly visual cues uh, even in the absence of kind of psychological context and so on, these things are pretty clearly predicted. These and other things, they are borne out by the evidence. And, and yet I, I think you, you know, you get into more trouble on the left now for saying them than you did in the nineties. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's what it's a product of. Well, don't you think that's actually less surprising given polarization in the country? Yeah, I guess I, uh, you know, maybe I shouldn't be surprised. I mean, I guess in one way it is surprising because there are more evolutionary psychologists now. There's a good chance if you're a 20-year-old in college, you'll take intro psych and there'll be a chapter on evolutionary psychology in your book. So in a way, we are more informed about it, but also more scandalized by it. Right. Well, this is, but this is also why I don't want to see evolutionary psychology identified with the right, you know? I, I, um, and, and I see that a little bit of that happening as a result of some of the things I just discussed. I mean, it becomes associated with the Google memo. The Google memo gets blowback from the left, uh, and so on, you know, and, um, and again, it's not, it doesn't make sense for evolutionary psychology to be associated with all aspects of the Google memo, but, but I, I, um, you know, I'd rather, uh, you know, Peter Singer wrote a book, a short book arguing, you know, that there could and should be and to some extent is a Darwinian left. And that's my view. They're there. You know, I'm, I'm left of center and a Darwinian. Um, so uh, I I am a little troubled by some of these uh, by some of the, um, you know, because I, I feel I worked pretty hard to um exonerate Darwinism of charges that it was inherently right-wing. Yeah, I mean, I can see the temptation to to conflate the two things because 
because of the naturalistic fallacy. That, that's a big reason. Yeah. So are you planning to write any more about evolution or are you planning to focus on tribalism and mindfulness in the near future? Uh, I, I want to focus on the tribalism problem um, in the near term, uh, you know, because it afflicts so many things. I mean, it afflicts American domestic politics. I think it has played a big role in more or less completely corrupting American foreign policy, which, so far as I can tell, is just an unmitigated disaster at this point. Do you feel like that's because of tribalism or more specifically because of Donald Trump? Oh, I think it's been a disaster for much longer than Trump. I mean, uh, I, I would certainly take Obama over Trump. Um, I would take some of the things Trump said during the campaign over what he's actually done in foreign policy. You know, he was talking a pretty non-interventionist um, line. But um, our foreign policies continue to be – our foreign policy continues to be dominated by a kind of good evil narrative. You know, we decide who the evil person is and then we have to do whatever it takes to cause them maximum harm. And if we decide however many years ago that Assad is evil and Syria and he is bad, um, you know, we arm a bunch of rebels, we and our allies, and turn what would have been a, a brutally suppressed insurrection. And of course, it's regrettable that it would have been brutally suppressed, but it's not as regrettable as what happened, which is hundreds of thousands of dead because we turned it into a civil war um, and millions of refugees and Donald Trump getting elected. I don't think he'd get elected if we and our allies had not, uh, had not turned that into a civil war by arming the opposition. And even today, if you say what I just said, um, which, you know, could be wrong, of course, I could be, it could turn out my analysis is wrong, but the point is, that's not the blowback you have to worry about. If you say what I just said, you have to worry about people saying, oh, you're an Assad apologist. Are you in favor of chemical weapons and stuff like that? Because, and, and that's just tribal thinking. You know, that, that, that psychologically, that's exactly what uh, people in Heterodox Academy complain about receiving from the left. So do you think things truly were better in the 1970s and 1980s? Well, the Cold War was such a different context. I mean, Vietnam was itself an epic blunder. So... I'm not here to defend American foreign policy in the early 70s. Um, you know, I mean, we have, I think our foreign policy is, I think the foreign policy of countries in general uh, has tended to exaggerate threats and over-respond to them. I think we did that then and and we're certainly doing it now. But I do think, um, I think our foreign policy is less... Uh, I think there are future. There, I think there are fewer realists in the foreign policy sense of that term in the foreign policy establishment than there used to be, and and I think that's a bad thing. I mean, I, you probably don't want to get into what foreign policy realism is, but uh, it is. It's among other things relatively unswayed by emotional appeals. <laughs> I was asking about foreign policy in the 70s and 80s, partly because I think of the 80s and uh, the proxy wars in Central America and how that was a very polarizing issue. I didn't live in the US then, but yeah. from what I've read, it was a very, very polarizing issue. And Yeah. And that was an example of overreacting to a threat, you know, like as if some Central American company, country is going to, you know, poses some grave threat to, to America, you know? Yeah. So, 
are you planning to do any research or any writing or like book length writing on tribalism? Uh, not in the near term. Actually, an editor I really respect once some years ago, like 10, suggested that I should write a book about foreign policy from the standpoint of evolutionary psychology. Um, and that would, I, I, I'd enjoy that. But in the short term, I do want to try to um, develop both this newsletter, the Mind for Resistance newsletter, and the, uh, you know, the Blogging Heads TV thing and my own show, the right show on that, and this sister channel, Meaning of Life TV. Uh, and to some extent, I mean, not exclusively, but use these things to try to address the problem of tribalism. When you were doing the Mindful Mindful uh, Resistance newsletter, did you get any feedback from guests about whether they were whether they found it was helpful in being more mindful about those? From you mean guests on? I mean, uh, from readers. Oh, from readers. Yeah. It's funny. We just did a, a a poll because we're taking a little time off in the summer. We just uh, asked people to take a five question survey, and about four hundred readers have taken it. And um, I think there's a feeling that I share that. Well, well, the, a number of people have said they they were. They did appreciate um, times when I kind of got into mindfulness or the problem of tribalism or the psychology of tribalism. And there's a feeling that we haven't been doing that enough in the newsletter. And we've been spending too much time doing other things. So that that may be one way that uh, one direction we move in um, when when the uh, the new and improved version emerges. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. So that's coming back in about three months. It'll probably be that long. It could come back sooner. We'll, we'll put out we'll put out a few issues in the meanwhile sporadically, but but as far as a weekly, uh, it'll probably be right after Labor Day that we resume on a weekly basis. Okay. Yeah, I think um, I, mean, I think bringing mindful to the mindfulness to this is interesting because a lot of the psychological work has been more about cognitive biases and recognizing confirmation bias and availability bias and several other biases you have. And undoubtedly that's related to mindfulness in theory, at least if you're more mindful, you should be more connected with reality and less biased, but there haven't been many psychologists who've taken, um, you know, taken a look at partisanship and said among people who practice mindfulness, do you find less partisanship or less hatred? Yeah. And I, it would be a tough thing to study and I'm not aware of any evidence either, but I think the key link to examine, uh, or I don't know if this is easy to examine empirically, but I think the key link here is the one between feeling affect and, and cognitive bias. Um, I think, you know, a, a theme of increasing prominence in psychology is how finely intertwined cognition and affect are. And that's a longstanding theme in Buddhist psychology. And, you know, if you pay attention, like on social media, when you are exhibiting confirmation bias, like if you see some tweet that confirms your opinion that Donald Trump is horrible and, and you retweet it without really examining its validity, if you pay attention to what you're doing, you're driven by feeling. Right. It's right. it's you like the information, you feel an urge to share it. It's like gratifying to share it. These are all feelings. And uh, and, you know, you 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 are attracted to information that confirms 
your pre-existing views. It feels good to embrace the information. And mindfulness, when it works, gives you a more, a little bit of critical distance from your feelings. It doesn't mean you don't have them, but it means you're more aware of them. And, and, and you may have a greater chance of, uh, deciding whether to follow their guidance rather than just uh, follow it reactively. So I, I think that's the dynamic that through which mindfulness can be helpful in, in, uh, in kind of combating tribalism. I, I think it, 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 it has to do with the fact that what we call cognitive biases tend to be actually mediated by affect, by feeling. Yeah. I, used to teach a course on happiness at Emory University. I might teach it again at Georgia Tech, where I am now. And we had a section on alleviating suffering. And one of the parts was mindfulness. This uh, hmm. just interesting. You can take these two perspectives. One is suffering is the result of not seeing the world clearly, maybe not seeing how your emotions are fleeting things that don't have as much substance as, as you think they have. And you can just sit, sit back and observe them. But the other way of alleviating suffering is to um, find values. It's part of acceptance and commitment therapy, which is a, some people label it a third generation cognitive therapy. Um, mm -hmm. It follows from the cognitive therapy of the 50s, but also involves actually finding values and engaging with those values. And I don't really talk about the contradiction. I just teach one topic and then I teach the next. But it is interesting that you can talk about mindfulness as a certain sense of detachment, and then you talk about values as really not having detachment, um, but just really being committed to these values and th this uh, yeah. duality there. I mean, detachment is a controversial word in this context uh, because it, 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 there's an irony about mindfulness that it's when you really experience the feelings closely and carefully that you get the critical distance. So it is and isn't. An attachment. It's a non-attachment in the sense that you are not being slavishly carried along by them. But um, it, it's hard to it's hard to convey exactly how it changes uh, your relationship to feelings. It certainly doesn't eliminate them, right? But it, it does give you what can can be called critical distance from them. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I think it's about time to wrap things up. Is there? Anything you'd like to say in closing? Oh, I don't. Uh, I don't think so. Um, I, I guess I would. Uh, I mean, an interesting question is. Uh, I, I I asked this of uh, Brett Weinstein uh, with respect to the intellectual dark web. But um, and 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 it might apply to the heterodox academy. Are there people in the heterodox academy who are protesting against speech code police on the right? There are. There are. What do you know? What the examples are that they're citing of speech code police on the right? Well, Jonathan Haidt, I'd say, is the person who's been tweeting this. I mean, he's officially not our executive director anymore, but he's still a heterodox academy person, and he's still uh, in our leadership. And he he tweets about. Um, tweets and retweets articles showing that it actually appears to be quite a big problem on the right too. I think the right strategy is different. With the right, it's more of an online mob strategy rather than an in-person mob strategy. So rather than have a Middlebury type incident where you have a live mob showing up, you out a professor online and you 
portray their work a little misleadingly to begin with, and then you get thousands of people to email them and send them death threats. And so he's tweeted mm-hmm. articles about that. I don't know if we've had any blog posts specifically about about the right. I think we've had some blog posts showing some symmetry in left and right intolerance for speech. We had one about four or five weeks ago by Sean Stevens about the symmetry. Mm. Hmm, hmm, hmm. I'll Google yeah. it. Sean Stevens, okay. Well, no, I, I can't think of um, anything else. I've I've plugged my stuff. I tweet at uh, Robert Ryder, W-R-I-G-H-T-E-R. And thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. As Bob mentioned, you can find him on Twitter at Robert Reiter, spelled W-R-I-G-H-T-E-R. He also hosts The Right Show, which you can find on bloggingheads.tv slash programs slash right show. It's a video show, but it's also available on podcast. And Robert describes it as conversations with a series of people who have nothing in common, except that program host Robert Wright is curious about what they're thinking. Brett Weinstein was his guest on May 18th, and Musa Algarbi of Heterodox Academy was his guest on May 7th. Thanks again for listening.